Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. Today, I want to have an argument with you, Gary. So we were throwing around some ideas in our little Telegram group for subjects that we could talk about. And I suggested that perhaps we could talk about the best way for people to progress beyond the desktop into headless machines if they've only ever used the Linux desktop. And you said to me, Gary, well, what's the point? In a world of cloud and serverless, surely anyone who doesn't know how to use the command line doesn't need to. And you are wrong. You are so wrong about this. And I want to have a, I want to have a proper row with you about it. Well, I guess to defend myself slightly, I think there are definitely some use cases where it makes sense. I think what I had in mind was the average university graduate who is looking to go into a career in software development probably doesn't need to go and learn the Linux command line at this point. Aside very basic stuff like using Git or LS or CD or the very basic GNU utils that we all use every day. Most of the time, they're just writing code and deploying it in some kind of serverless function, and someone else looks after all of that stuff for them. Who, though? Who looks after that for them? The people they're paying a lot of money to look after it for them. Yeah, that's the thing. System administration has become an entire industry at this point. Look at most cloud providers. They will look after the underlying runtime of your Docker containers for you. They'll have like a managed Kubernetes service or a managed container service. Or some of them even go one level above that, where you just give them your Python and it runs as a you know batch job or whatever else. And they look after the OS image. They look after even the runtime and even like the versions of Python in most cases. You just have to make sure that your code is up to date and will run in the environment that they give you. And yes, you pay handsomely for that in a lot of cases, but it also means that you don't have to worry about any of that. You just write your code and it runs somewhere. Well, guess you won. Uh, we're all done here. <laughs> yep. See you later, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I do appreciate that there are edge cases here. I mean, Chris, you work in HPC, and clearly you know, that's an entirely different industry. And there are times where you know, people need to understand Linux because they're getting SSH access to the box. But I just don't see, like with the people I work with day to day, the need for them to have SSH access to anything. They just write the code and run it. Right, but I think you're in serious danger here of having a cloud-shaped hammer and seeing everything as a nail. But if you're leaving university, chances are you're going to get a job in a company that is making use of cloud. That is true, but if everything's abstracted away from you and you don't have any clue how any of it works, then what do you do when it goes wrong? I suppose just destroy it and start again. Yeah, that is true. I mean, most of that infrastructure is immutable. So if your you know, Python project that you're running in a cloud provider stops working, you just restart it, and then it will probably start working again, because the underlying stuff wouldn't have changed. So yeah, if it goes wrong, you just throw it away and run it again. And it's no big deal in most cases. The data is completely separate from the application. And you're probably using a managed database as well. And if that's the case, chances are you just open a support ticket and someone from insert cloud company here sorts it out for you. I think that's ultimately a good thing because it means that there's a lower barrier to entry to get into software development, which, I mean, means that a lot of crap is going to be made. A lot of crap has been made for the past, you know, however many years of software development we've watched. But it also means that 
much like YouTube kind of revolutionized how content is made, distributed, and ultimately what is created, I think the same thing is going to happen for software. Where software isn't necessarily a creative endeavor, we can talk about that another time, but some things are, like making a website that (laughs) makes Firefox do funny things, or that makes funny noises when you mouse over the right things. Making that easier for people, I think, is a good thing overall. Right, but someone has to understand the fundamentals of how all this works. You're going to end up with so few people actually knowing how to administer these systems from the metal upwards that you're going to have a serious problem. I don't think so. Very few people actually understand how the Intel x86 architecture works at this point, or how to write code that will actually run on it. But that doesn't stop it from being useful and used by a lot of people. Yeah, and I think the key was that I said most people don't need to understand it. If you really want to go into a career in systems administration or networking, I think you'll just end up working for a company that specializes in doing the stuff that developers don't want to do. And making a killing doing it. Yeah, yeah. Like those people make a ton of money. I would imagine someone who is working at Google, racking and stacking servers and installing the OS on them, etc., probably makes a lot more than they would have done if they were working at a doctor's office doing the same thing. But I still think there is value in going back to basics before you get into the cloud stuff, before you become a cloud admin, I suppose, it makes sense to me to mess around with some Raspberry Pis or old desktop or laptop machines headlessly on your own network, or even SSH'd into a cloud instance that is just a base Linux installation that you then have to build up some sort of stack on top of manually. Isn't it better to understand or have at least a basic understanding of how all that works before you then just abstract it all away. I think that's definitely a path that you can go down. But I also think that it's a case where a lot of people take a lot of different paths to get to the same goal. For example, I work with some instructors who teach how to fix cars. And in some cases, they will have a carbureted engine block in their classes to show students what came before fuel injection. Car analogy. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the only way to learn how to work on a modern engine. Context is very important, isn't it, as well? I can see where you're coming from, Joe. You don't want to be in a situation where nobody is able to take responsibility for that. I don't know. I get the sense that people are less interested in that, maybe. They want to skip ahead. But is it such a bad thing that they don't necessarily know every single step of the way? It really depends. You know, Gary, you mentioned in my job, the role that we take is to facilitate people achieving an end goal which might be scientific or or various other objectives. And that's fine. You know, if sometimes people don't fully understand everything that's happened, that's okay. The problem comes if we're trying to step backwards with the person and there isn't like a fundamental understanding of getting there. It's difficult for us particularly, as you said, Gary, it makes a lot of sense for 
the individual users of uh, an HPC setup to know how to interface with the command line simply because we can fit more jobs onto the resources that we have available. If you can write a, a small batch script that then gets sent to a scheduler and is allocated resources. We do also have graphical environments, but you have to limit that because you're going to fit a lot less of those in the hardware you have available to you. And you don't want everyone to just fall back to the GUI all the time. But it is a very different setup than a lot of what you might work in, Gary, where if you're offering various elements as a service and it's paid for, then at the end of the day, if, if it's functioning and all of those pieces are in place, that's fine. The only worry I would have is if you ever turn around and go, oh, it's broken. Okay. How's it broken? Oh, it says this. What does that mean? And then a tumbleweed for like five minutes because nobody <laughs> involved in the process at all has any idea of what that means. So it really, it really is about context. I wouldn't want the complete loss of the basic building blocks, but I'm not as strongly where Joe is. I think if they're still handled, then that's fine. I do think that it's becoming a slightly lost art, potentially. Lost art just means more money for the people who can do it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I don't know. It's just my sense. I feel like people are less interested in that kind of nitty gritty stuff than they are in shiny, exciting end product where someone else has done that nitty gritty stuff. So you say this, but I think those people are interested in different nitty gritty things. So for example, I would have very little interest in going and writing a role-based access control policy, but these people can almost do those kind of things with their eyes closed. Similarly, yeah, they deeply understand things like zero trust and not having a concept of a local network for services to intercommunicate across, which is something that we just never had in the old days. So I think there are different pieces of nitty gritty stuff that they are interested in. And it's just moved further up the stack than perhaps yeah, when we started out in our careers. And certainly to Joe's point, it can be helpful to have that kind of knowledge. For example, because I understand C and managing memory and how Python is doing that under the hood, I can understand why sometimes you get weird behavior out of doing a long running process in Python why the memory leaks occur and things like that. But that, for the most part, doesn't mean anything for the code that I'm writing, whether it be a Flask web application or just a script that's scheduled by GitLab CI to do a thing every six hours. It, for the most part, doesn't matter, and it wouldn't matter if I knew that or not for the output of my work. Yeah, and I think that those kind of skills are really valuable, and those are the kind of skills that you end up with in quite senior engineers, like principal engineer types. It's certainly you know, in the people I talk to day to day, they don't understand that kind of stuff, and therefore they end up writing quite poorly optimized code, and it costs them a lot more to run it. And then when you really get into the nitty gritty of it, you find actually they've just written a Python application that's a long running task that's got awful memory leaks, but you move it up the chain to a principal engineer who does understand that stuff. You help them rewrite it. You give them a few pointers about the environment that that code is running in. And generally, they can improve things. So yeah, I think that kind of knowledge is still valuable. I think it's just not every developer needs to know it at this point. 
Because you're not going to have an angry sysadmin coming after you when a box runs out of RAM. You're going to have an angry CFO coming after you when your bill for AWS is suddenly 30 grand. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a case that as things have become more complicated, we necessarily need to abstract more of this stuff away? Because you can't hope to understand the whole stack top to bottom. And so as things progress and become more and more complicated... You kind of have to specialize more and leave the installation of the operating system, for example, and deciding the partition layout. That's not even relevant anymore to most people who are doing infrastructure as code because that's all just taken care of for them. They're much more interested in the provisioning of thousands of containers and VMs. Yeah, I think that is the case. And I would even take it one step further that these days people aren't even interested in the provisioning of containers and VMs. They're interested in their code running and having an endpoint. It could be running on any operating system. It could be Linux. It could be Fuchsia. It could be Windows. They don't care. They just want to have their code execute and run somewhere. So it becomes more and more abstracted as time goes on. Like containers and VMs and stuff are already an outdated concept at this point. I think that's what everyone always wanted, though, and it's just now become possible to actually make it happen. I mean, when I was spinning up Apache and PHP and all of that so that I could run Nextcloud, I didn't want Apache or PHP, I wanted Nextcloud. And while it's a good thing that I learned how to do those things, I think, all I really wanted was Nextcloud, and if someone could have just given that to me, I would have been just as happy. Ah, snap install Nextcloud, problem solved. Ah. (laughs) But we are getting to the point now where there are very large organizations who are having their we-have-no-servers-anymore parties (laughs) because they just don't need it. Someone else looks after that stuff for them. It's just become almost redundant at this point for most organizations who are just trying to run a web app to even bother with that. What about the eggs and baskets argument, though? My understanding is that each cloud provider is sufficiently different that as you abstract it away and get deeper and deeper into one cloud provider, it becomes less and less possible to move to another one and you just become completely dependent on them. Yeah, I mean, we've had this discussion before on Late Night Linux when you've asked me to come and troll Phelan. And <laughs> I, I do agree with you. There is, there is a danger of vendor lock-in, but there's always been a danger of vendor lock-in, right? Like when you chose to use Oracle for your DB. Don't do that, kids. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. But you were locked in to Oracle. When you chose to run your website on an IIS web server, you were locked in to Windows. So being locked into a single cloud provider isn't that bad. And I guess more to the point, if all you care about is running your Python application, you just have your Python code. The execution of that is just an implementation detail, and you could take that and run it in Azure or AWS or GCP. They all have services that will do it for you. But isn't that what's so great about Linux and open source, is that you're not locked in. You are locked in. You're locked into that single product. If you choose to build your entire application on Postgres, you're locked into Postgres. The only difference is that if the company making Postgres were to go away, community, that you still have the code. I think it's just about sensible decisions, isn't it? That's the thing. It's it's like we discussed in our own personal setups about how we all, I think, are actually doing a similar thing where 
we use platforms to a certain level where we're not so far in that we can't get out, whether that's having our photos in Google Photos, but that not being the only place that they're stored and having a file-based backup of them so that they can be moved elsewhere. It's the same thing, like Gary said, if you've got your Python code that you've written, that's the most important thing. Where you should start to be sensible and worry is if a provider comes along and goes, ah, oh, there's actually a language which is quite similar to Python, but it makes it easier. And there are these shortcuts you can take and you end up with something that you then can't take elsewhere. That's where you have to be slightly savvy, I think. But I think it's a positive if you can focus on just that code and then say, make this run without having to go, what is happening in the background to get me there? So it's always about being sensible I think. Now, it depends who's making the decisions as to how sensible you are. You could be the sensible voice, but you don't have the keys to the castle. So the sensible decisions aren't made. And even if you take it a layer down the stack, a lot of those services that cloud providers give you are pretty much API compatible with any of the open source stuff. So if you take a lot of the serverless DBs, for example, they are Postgres or MySQL compatible. If you take S3, for example, that API is pretty open and pretty well known, and there are lots of S3 compatible storage platforms. So even if you take it a layer down the stack and start thinking about yeah, those kind of services that you're using, they are pretty open and they generally are portable cross-cloud and cross-on-prem. So say a young relative of yours came to you for advice, Gary, and said, I want to get into IT like you, Uncle Gary. <laughs> what should I do? Would you tell them to spin up a Raspberry Pi and SSH into it and learn about basics like LS and copying stuff around and R-syncing and all the rest of it? Or would you tell them, no, just get started with a cloud provider? They've got this free tier or whatever or this trial that you can do. Get into it that way. I would probably tell them to spin up the Raspberry Pi and go and learn about CP and R-Sync and all that stuff that you said. But I wouldn't want them to go any deeper than that because all I see most developers doing in their day job is using those basic commands in the little terminal window at the bottom of VS Code or IntelliJ. I think that the real value at this point is going and learning a programming language because the biggest thing that I see missing from the way that I learned how to IT was that I didn't learn to program. I didn't go and learn Java or Python or Rust or Go. And I think that in a world where we're moving more and more away from the operating system or the hardware or even the VM or the container mattering, knowing how to go to that level where you can just start writing code is the really important thing. And the rest of the stuff is an implementation detail that in five years' time, someone else will worry about for you. Well, hopefully, they are wise words. And I think I trust you a little bit more than I trust me on this. So uh, I think you might have won, Gary. Well done. <laughs> Yay. But do let us know what you think, dear listener. You can email us, show at linuxafterdark.net. Whose side are you on? Were you convinced by Gary? Or uh, are you failing, essentially? <laughs> <laughs> Not even you? <laughs> No, Gary convinced me, I think. I think that uh, I was wrong about this, and you were right, Gary, so well done. I try and be reasonable. I try and uh, 
take arguments on board and not be too uh, set in my ways. That said, I think that I would tell the the young person to uh, probably do both, but why not keep the Raspberry Pi around for a little bit longer than Gary would? Yeah, you keep the Raspberry Pi around and put some kind of S3 emulator or something on it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, we'll be back in two weeks then. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I use the cloud. And I've been Dalton. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) 